I'll begin reading in verse 1, John chapter 5. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos, that's porches. In these, in these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the movement or moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then was first, or whoever then first after the stirring of the water stepped in, in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the water or pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the, so the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who, who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was. But Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in, their, in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for safety. Thank you for allowing us to be together today, and thank you for bringing us through the through the snowy and icy weather. Lord, uh, we do recognize your sovereign hand in all of this, and you are just a gracious God and so kind to us. Thank you for warm building. Thank you for lights, for electricity, and thank you, Lord, for just warm fellowship, but just being together, and the common bond that we have through Jesus Christ. May we never forget the salvation that you provided for us and the eternal life as a result. Lord, we pray that you would bless our time around your word. May we glean from these pages nuggets of truth that will change our lives, that will sink deep into our hearts and our minds and and change the direction, change the way we think, change our actions, change what we do on a daily basis. We know Your Word has power. We know it can change our lives, and we 
we wish that to be so about our lives. We pray that you would bless our time, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When Ruthie and I came together as man and wife, we brought together two sinful lives, really two sinful families, extended families, you might say. And that's the way it is with all families. Uh, when two people come together, they're, they're bringing the strengths and the weaknesses of both of those families. And many times, it's just sinfulness. My family had uh, different weaknesses, let's say, than the Reinhardt family, than her family. They had sins that they struggled over, and, and the Dinguses had sins that they struggled over, and, and uh, there was different weaknesses. Now, my wife is still trying to look for strengths. Uh, she just sees the bad, and she just sees the sinfulness, but I keep telling that there's somewhere in there, there's some good, there's some strengths, but we, we bring together two, just two families of clashes of sinfulness sinfulness. It'd be great if there was no sin. But the biggest problem in marriage, in in any kind of relationship really, is just sin. And it causes the opposition. It causes the struggle. It causes the the heartache. And that's the biggest, biggest part, biggest problem, is just man's sinfulness. Now, can you imagine Christ him being God himself as, a, as God, and he's, he puts that aside and comes down and becomes man. And he's living among sinful men. And I would say that his biggest opposition, his biggest struggle was just man's sinfulness. At every turn, on every level, man was just sinful, and that's got to be the most frustrating thing for Christ, in, in my opinion. And, and we see that in this passage. We, this is just replete with sinfulness on all kinds of levels. Many different levels. And it becomes an, an obstacle for Christ. Uh, it becomes a, an opposition. It, it, it's, it's a struggle for Him, but it's obviously an opposition that He can overcome But it's these people that are opposing him in in many, many different ways. And I just want us to look at that for a little bit today. This is the opposition of Christ, and it's primarily because of man's sinfulness. Because we are sinful, we bring sin into every situation. And that's what we see here. Let's... uh, I I want us to, to keep in mind, though... John's bigger purpose. And if you turn over to John chapter 20, just a a reminder, John chapter 20, verse 31, he's he's telling us why he's writing. And we need to keep this in mind. We've got to keep the big picture in mind here uh, because it will give us guidance and direction as we look into the details of this this passage here of, of what's the point. But in verse 30, he says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples. Many others. In fact, other places we see the books cannot contain all that Jesus taught and did. He did many other signs. There was, there's a whole lot of them, he says, in front of his disciples that they saw 
these things happen firsthand, which were not written in this book. So John's saying there's certain things, there's a lot of things that are not written in this book, but these, he said in verse 31, have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. So John has selected certain signs, certain miracles to... um, to give evidence of Christ's deity, of who Christ is. He is pointing to Christ, not just some of the signs and miracles, but he's giving us some of the teachings. This whole book is a recording of what Christ did. He's pushing Christ so that you would believe, and as a result of believing, you have eternal life. That's John's point. That's what John desires as we read this book. That's what he wants. That's the conclusions that he wants us to reach. So we've got to keep that in mind. Now we come to another. John only gives us eight miracles. Eight miracles. Of all the miracles that he did, he only gives us about eight miracles in this book. Nine if you would include the the resurrection of Christ. But uh, this is the third one. Now, we've seen that Christ was not limited. In fact, he had power over the elements when he turned water into wine. That was his first miracle. And then we saw last week how he healed the uh, official's son. And he didn't even have to be there. Uh, he just spoke the word and the, man was, or the young boy was healed. So he's given two, uh, two examples of the power of Christ. And again, what you were to conclude there is only God can do these things. And that Jesus obviously was God. We need to conclude that. But you might think, in our minds, we might think, well, you know, maybe it was just somebody put some dye in it and maybe some sugar and, and just it tasted like wine. And maybe this, uh, maybe this young son of the, the nobleman, maybe he was going to get better anyway and, and Christ wasn't actually there and uh, maybe his, just his young, strong body was going to heal itself anyway. So John then gives us a different scenario here. In fact, it's almost just the opposite. This is an older man. Now, here's what I want us to see, though. Um, There's actually a few other elements here. I just want to notice, just by way of introduction, Jesus' ministry, remember, has just blossomed. I mean, people are attracted to him in, in droves. But those who were actually believing were really very few. They were attracted to the miracles... They wanted to see what Christ had to say and, uh, and what he would do next. But really, they were, they were rejecting Christ. In their heart, they just wanted to, to see, uh, they wanted to be entertained. And, um, and so, Christ's miracles or Christ's ministry just, just became huge. And people were following him, many people. Now, as a result of that, there had to be a decision. A decision had to be made by the, the, the spiritual leaders of that day. What are we going to do with this Jesus? Who is he? We've got to make some decision here. We've got to make some kind of conclusion so that we can let these people know that this man is obviously in the wrong. He is not who he claims to be. And he is a, he is a deceiver. 
And uh, so they had to, they had to, to, to say, they had to figure out what can we say, what can we conclude. And this is, by the way, about halfway in Jesus' ministry. This is about a year and a half into Jesus' ministry. And uh, that's kind of the context. That's the backdrop. That's where we are. Here's what I want you to see about this particular passage, though. Christ's power and authority. His power and authority was unrestricted or unrestrained by any limitations of mankind. Now by that I mean sinfulness. Man was just wrought with sin, but none of that overcame the power of God nor the authority of God. And John's pointing that out in this particular passage. He's pointing out the authority and the power of Christ. Nothing can hold him back. Not the sinfulness of man. None of of that can hold him back. He is going to do what he's going to do. And thus, demonstrating his godness. He is God. The question that I want to ask here is just the quality. What quality of Christ are demonstrated in this third miracle John is giving us? Now, number one, this is just, I just have two points, and you think, boy, this is going to be short, but uh, don't count on that. You know my history. So, if we can get through two, that would be wonderful. So, the first one, though, is just from one to nine, and it's just the account of this, of this miracle. And let's begin at verse one, and just kind of explain this text, and kind of uh, see what's going on here. Now remember, Jesus was ministering in Galilee. He had gone up from Judea and he was ministering in Galilee. There was a good response, but it was because of the miracles and people wanted to see the miracles and they said, do the same thing you did in Jerusalem and, uh, and let's see these things. And so uh, he was ministering there, but, but there was a Passover or, or some feast. There was one or two, three or four feasts. Actually, it could have been, but... Uh, but he found himself in Jerusalem. That's the point. What feast? It doesn't really matter. But the point is that Jesus was now in Jerusalem. Now in Jerusalem, though, there is this sheep gate. Now that would have been on the northern part of Jerusalem. And there would have been just outside that, they would have kept the sheep. That was where the sheep would have been. And they would have brought them in and out through that way. And that was uh, crucial because of the, the sacrificial uh, system of the offerings and, and uh, the sheep were many of them were killed and so that sheep gate was an important gate but by that gate and he's just giving us some uh, some little background by that gate there was a pool there was a we don't know exactly uh, much about this but there was some kind of pool and there was porches built all around it and um, and because of that people would come and and uh, and just lie there they would uh, there was a a myth of some kind of uh, miraculous powers to this water. And uh, you think, well, that's kind of strange. Well, it's, it is strange, but you, you know what? We do the same thing today. Ruthie and I, and my wife and I, uh, when we lived in Indiana, we went to a, a resort. Uh, this was in French Lick, Indiana. Larry Bird is uh, his home. His homestead is there. It's where he grew up. It's a little hole in the wall. There's nothing there, but it's a resort. There is a resort there. And you think, well, it was a resort, let's say that. And they were trying to restore it when we were there. But it was a resort that was really popular back in the 30s and 40s. 
French Lick. And this resort was built around these hot springs. So when you drive up to this resort and you get out of the, uh, uh, get out of the car in the parking lot, you begin to smell sulfur. Yeah. And, and it was just, it permeated that air. And, and you just think, surely this is not it. Surely we've got the wrong place. But, but that whole place was built around this idea of this water had medicinal powers. I mean, you, you go and you can soak in this hot water and it maybe arthritis. or I don't know what all it cured or, or whatever, but, but people would flock to this place many years ago. And then after a while, probably the smell just couldn't overcome the, 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 the lack of... Uh, healing powers of the water maybe i don't know but they 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 just left so so we kind of do the same thing today but there was there was something about this water and they said well it's um um it, it has healing powers and so there was a lot of people there was sick blind lame and withered now look at the end of verse three and the whole of verse four you might see in this passage a little caveat at the side that says this verse is not in the original manuscripts. And in fact, it really doesn't start showing up in the manuscripts until about the 4th century. But in the original manuscripts, this verse was not there. There was nothing about the angel stirring up the water. It's not there. In fact, probably what happened was it was a scribe that put some comments on the side, and they kind of can trace this back and just the history of that and the comments on the side. And eventually it got into the text as an explanation of the stirring of the water. But probably what it was was just this spring had uh, an underground... Uh, it was uh, su- uh, supported by this underground stream. And every once in a while, uh, uh, air would get in there, bubbles would come up, and it would be a stirring of the water. And uh, so it, it, it got this name. It got this reputation. Now... So this man, these people uh, were around this pool. And the man was there, verse 5, and the man was there who... Uh, by the way, let me go back and kind of support this idea. There's also five or six words in here that are uh, in verses, the end of verse 3 and verse 4 that are never seen in John's Gospels, nor his letters. It's just kind of indicating that, uh, that this is not really in the text. And if you read it, it's a little awkward to read. It's not, it doesn't sound like John. The more you read John, the more you, you become familiar with his writings. This just does not sound like John. And it was added to. It was added to. Now let's begin at verse 5. A man was there, and he was ill. Now we don't know exactly what was wrong with him. Uh, some may say the paralytic. Uh, he, he might have been paralyzed. He might have had some movement. But something had uh, caused this man to, to, to uh, be ill for 38 years. Now let's contrast that with the young uh, son of the official, of the, uh, the nobleman's son. He, he had been there for 38 years. Now, if you are laying there, if, you, if your limbs are not really used for 38 years, you lose muscle mass. In fact, uh, I have a friend that's in a wheelchair, and he's a quadriplegic, and he was, we were talking, we've talked many times, you know, if the Lord healed me, my spine, it was just a bruise of the spine, 
If the Lord healed that part, he said, I would still have to learn to walk all over again. I would never be able to to walk. And and even his heart would have to get stronger. His bones uh, uh, had become um, uh, used to that situation and not strong enough or as strong as they needed to be. And his body was not on the upswing anymore. He was not increasing in his power, but he was kind of declining, kind of like the rest of us, kind of like all of us. When we reach a certain age, we begin to we feel it, the decline. So Jesus, Jesus is going to show, John is going to show that Jesus had power over the body even in the declining mode, even at its worst Verse 6, and Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in this condition. And he said to him, he said now, do you wish to get healed? Do you, do you wish to get well? And what kind of question is that? You don't go up to a sick person and say, do you wish to get well? Listen, this guy had been in this condition for so long, he was probably helpless and hopeless. He was probably to the point that, listen, nothing can be done for me. Uh, uh, Just just move on. Notice, he didn't even ask Jesus to help him or to to heal him. Most of the people were were maybe raising up their hands trying to get Jesus' attention. But Jesus goes goes up to him and says, do you wish to be healed? Now, that's kind of a, that's kind of a rebuke even. And Jesus is kind of confronting this lack of will, his, his uh, will to be cured. He is used to being in that situation. He was just used to that. And, you know, it didn't even, and he had an excuse for it. He said, verse 7, uh, the sick man said, it, Sir, when uh, uh, I have no man to put me into the pool, it's not my fault. Nobody will help me for 38 years. Nobody will help you. Well, that was his plight. That was he was drawn to that conclusion. But but you get the sense that he was comfortable there, and he had developed some kind of victim mentality. Well, it's just the way it is, and so he he stopped fighting. He stopped trying. His whole will was just not there anymore. And uh, he says, I, I try, you know, when I'm getting ready to step in, I, I maybe crawls over there, maybe an army crawl, something. I don't know, but he's getting ready to get in, and somebody steps right in, right before him, and he had a good excuse. But look at the power of Christ. Look at the power of Christ in verse 8. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Now, notice, this is a command. Jesus is commanding a man who cannot walk to walk. Wow. He was commanding a man who cannot walk to walk. It is impossible for him to walk. He can't walk. 38 years he's been in that condition, and his muscle mass was not there. He could not support himself. But, God, but Christ says, you get up and walk, and you pick up your pallet. You've got to bend over and pick it up, and you, then you walk. Wow. Now, this man did not say, well, you know, I can't do that. You heal me first, and then I'll do that. 
He, he didn't say, uh, well, you, you come over and help me up. And Jesus didn't go over and help him up. And he didn't say, he didn't sit back and say, well, I'm just going to wait on the Holy Spirit to, to kind of pick me up. Jesus commanded him to get up. And immediately, verse 9 says, the man was well, became well, and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now, that's just really interesting to see the power of God and how the power of God works. It really is kind of amazing to us or to me that that this is the way things are. And the power really is within the command of Christ and the obedience of this man. It was kind of the two working together. The man got up. He immediately got up. Now, how does he do that? Well, Obviously, it was the power of Christ. It was God's power working in him. But it also demonstrated the word of uh, the power of God, Christ's word. But just Jesus had to overcome his own will, his own will to uh, to uh, be able to walk. I think that this man is used, so used to his condition that uh, he, he, he lacked the willpower and, and I think he just got up. And I think Christ even gave him that willpower to be able to do that. Jesus Christ had the power to command the paralytic to walk. He had the power to command a dead person to get up. He had the command or he had the power to command a blind person to see, a young man to be healed. It goes against nature. You know what? This is exactly the way salvation is. Christ, in his power, he commands us, he commands us, believe. People who cannot believe... Cannot believe. People who are dead in their sins cannot repent of their sins. Christ had to empower us to be able to be saved. It's it's a miracle, folks, that any of us believe. That any of us put our faith and trust in Christ. It's a miracle that we any of us put aside our sinfulness. But it's the power of God and the Word of God that empowers us to be able to do so. All it is from our point is just obedience. The man just just did it. He just got up. He just obeyed Christ's command. Um, He had to, in fact, I think that he had to empower this guy, um, this guy to, to just obey He had to to give him the drive, the will, the determination, the resolve resolve to to get up. And the man got up. Now, how do we apply that? What do we do with that? The power of Christ is within the command, and then the command is given, and the person just gets up, or the person is raised from the dead, or the person sees now, how does that happen? We would kind of expect a, 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 a movie kind of situation where the, the, there's a tingling and, a, and a, a, you know, a glow about the person and then the person gets up or something like that. No, it just, he just got up. It was just based upon his obedience. 
and the power of God. And you may say, well, was that his effort? Was that his motivation? Was that his empowerment? Did he, did he do that? Well, he's the one that got up, but it was the result of Christ working in his life. That's the way things work. That's the way your salvation works. Christ commands you, and then you respond. You do it, and you look back and you say, Wow, Christ did that. It was God who did that in our lives. Now, if that's the way it works with salvation and with healing and with any other kind of miracles, it's really kind of the way it works with our own sanctification as well. Our own sanctification. There's a list of verses that I want us to look at. Look at, uh, I think they're on the screen. Yeah. Let's look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. I want you to see this point. This is so important because somehow I think Hollywood has changed the way we view uh, uh, miracles of God and, uh, and, and God's power. And, and we kind of miss the point. We miss it of how these two things come together. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. Actually, let me start at the end of verse 12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's a command. Paul is saying, you work it out. You work this out in your life. As you work, as you're going along your life, you, you, uh, you flesh these things out. This salvation that has been a part of your life, this salvation that is now in you, you work it out. And with fear and trembling, with a lot of respect for God, with with reverence there. Look at verse 30. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work His good pleasure. He provides the motivation. He provides the will. He provides that determination and that doggedness, that grit. And sometimes that's what it takes. We saw in Paul's life. It just took grit. It took determination. I want to get rid of my sinfulness. That's good. God, provide that motivation. Now do it. It's God's working in you. Look at, uh, look at another one. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. Hebrews 13, 20. Now the God of peace, Hebrews thirteen twenty. Now the God of peace, who brought uh, who brought up from the dead the great Shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the uh, eternal covenant, even Jesus Christ our Lord. So he's, he's talking about God who who raised Christ from the dead, who had that power to do so. May He equip you in every good work to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. How can people who cannot please God, please God? I don't know. How can it be? What can we do? There's nothing we can do to please God. But yet, He's working in us to please God. How can dead men get up and walk? How can or paralyzed men get up and walk? How can dead men rise from the dead? It is God's power, no less than God's power working. How can we who are dead in faith, how can we who are dead in sins have faith? 
and get rid of sin, put away sin. It's obviously the work of God working in our life, transforming our lives. Let me show you another one. First Corinthians 15. This will be the last one. First Corinthians 15. This is the way God works. It's through His Word. His Word has innate power. And when we simply obey that Word, our lives are changed. Look at this perfect balance that we see. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. But by the grace of God, it's God's grace, I am what I am. This is Paul speaking. He said he recognizes in his own life that it had to be God at work. It's just God's grace that I am what I am. And His grace toward me did not prove vain. But I, I labor. I labor even more than all of them. Even many of the rest of the disciples, many of the rest of the other people that claim to believe in God. Paul says, I labored, I worked, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. And Paul sees that, that he's coming to grips with that. He, he understands that. He's recognizing, you know what, it's not me, but yet it is me. And, and I think we struggle with that sometimes. It's not, well, 50% God and 50% me. No, it's 100% God, but yet... It's 100% you. You give the effort. You get up. You exercise that faith. You believe. You, you put off that sin. Can we get any of the credit for that? No. No. Men without faith can't believe. Men who are dead in their sin can't repent. It's obviously God at work in us. Now, let's move on. Let me try to somewhat apply this. I, I, believe that, I believe that this is very practical, really, when it comes down to it. Um, Christ supplies the power in this situation. In John chapter 5, He supplied the power, and the man just got up. The man obeyed. He just got up. And He commanded, uh, you know, let's just, by way of application, we are commanded... This is the strongest one that I could find in Scripture. We are commanded to be holy. You say, well, I can't be holy. And you're right. Sinful people can't be holy. We can't. We throw up our hands. But listen, we, we don't sit and get used to our condition and say, oh, I can't do anything about it. If Christ commands you to be holy, then you be holy. So I'll never get there. Well, you just try. You just, you just obey. He'll provide the power. He'll, he'll, just, he'll, he'll be there. He'll catch you. Just keep going. Just walk. Just do it. Is it my, my strength? Is it my effort? Not at all. If, if there is any holiness to be found in Carl Dingus, it's the result of Christ working in my life. Paul says, it's just by the grace of God. And he's absolutely right. Absolutely right. 
Christ's power was not hampered by any physical restraints or the lack of will from this person, this this man, or, or any kind of physical ailments that he might have. No matter how long he'd been there, his Christ's power can overcome that. Christ's power can overcome any of the sins that we have may gotten we may have gotten used to in our lives. And I think we I think we have. I think we just get so complacent in our lives that we just uh, oh, that's just part of my nature. That's just kind of who I am. That's part of my personality. That's just my weakness. I'm just an angry person. You know, everybody just gets over it. They just accept me for the way I am. Well, wait a second. God says to be holy. You need to do something about that. You need to just simply obey and let God's work work in you just through that obedience, just getting up. And let me give you another point. We can do this in five minutes. <laughs> Look at verse 9. Verse 9. He says that he immediately got up and he picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now, now, by the way, this is a command. He was commanded to do so. He said, you get up, you pick up your pallet, and you walk. Now, why bring in the whole pallet thing? Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He, he just knows how to push the buttons of these Pharisees, of the leadership. Now, look at verse, uh, well, the end of verse 9. Now, it was on the Sabbath. Uh, it was the Sabbath on that day. Uh, that that is so key. <laughs> you have to understand that, and you need to understand the significance of the Sabbath on this at this point. Verse ten. So the Jews were saying to the man, they found this man, and he was walking around carrying his pallet. What are you doing carrying your pallet on the Sabbath? Now, the Jews, who were these? This wasn't just any Jew. This is referring back to the Jewish leaders. In fact, we see that in chapter one. Of John, he uses the same uh, same little phrase here. In fact, he uses it several times throughout this gospel. But he says in verse nineteen, chapter one, verse nineteen, this is the this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem. That was the Jewish council. That would have been the the Jewish leadership, and and they had to they sent word. Who is this man? Uh, concerning John the Baptist. So these Jews, they see this man. That's a red flag. Uh Uh-oh, something's going wrong. Something's wrong here. And so they begin to pursue this, and they inquire from this man. Now, look look what happens. Um, these, These Jews were concerned about the Sabbath. About the Sabbath. Now, what they were doing... They were not focusing upon the man's miracle, the man getting well, which that's an amazing thing to me. Why is the obvious not so obvious? I mean, they're, they're focusing on the, the little pallet, just this little mat, this thing made of straw probably, and really lightweight, and they're focused on that? When this man had been sick for 38 years? Yeah, they had the wrong focus but that's, that's what it was. And we'll talk about the Sabbath more next week. And we'll see that starting verse 17. And we'll see the, the problems that that has caused. I want you to notice this man in verse 11. But he, um, but he answered to them. He says, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. So he's, blamed. He, he's gotten used to, 
to blaming somebody else. It's, it's his fault. Now, when you compare that with the other healings of Jesus and, and the responses, boy, they don't respond like that. It's just, it's always a little bit different. There's something, something a little strange here. He's, he's just drawing his attention to, to Christ. Well, he's the one that told me. And we'll see the difference when you look at chapter 19 of the, the man born blind, how significant that healing was. We'll see the difference that in a little bit. But look at this. And they said to the man, who is the man? Who was the one that said, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know because Jesus had slipped away in the crowd. That's understandable. Verse 14, after Jesus found him. So Jesus finds this man in the temple, and that's what he was supposed to do. He was supposed to go to the temple and uh, declare himself to be clean again. So Jesus found him. Jesus knew where he would be. And behold, uh, and Jesus told him, He says, Behold, you have become well. You have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Now the implication here is that it was because of this man's sinfulness that he was in this state. Now not all sin is a re- or not all illness is a result of a direct result of our sinfulness. Again, this is man's state. This is man's plight, his sinfulness. And he was a sinful man. And Christ says, now you go and, and don't sin anymore so that nothing worse will happen to you. And you would think that at that moment, the man would just wrap his arms around Christ and say, for 38 years, I was in a helpless condition, but you saved me. But he doesn't. He doesn't. There seems to be no real appreciation here. There seems to be a a, a lack of faith even. A lack of faith in Christ. And all the commentaries that I read, that's what they were pointing out. Where does... There is no faith here in this man. But Jesus healed him anyway. In fact, what he does is he goes and he opposes Christ. And and the principle here is that he had already rejected Christ in his heart. And eventually, when you reject Christ in your heart inwardly, eventually you will oppose him outwardly. And that's exactly what happens. And the man went away and he told the Jews, Oh, it was Jesus. He's the one. You need to get him. Where was the appreciation of this man? And the man, in verse 16, he says, for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus. They were opposing Him. They, they hated Him. They began to strategize. How can we kill Him? Jesus' authority, though, to, his, authority, his authority was over the Sabbath. He was not subjected to man's rule. This, this tradition, the rabbinical tradition of man... He, was, he had his own conviction, and his conviction was based upon the Word of God. And he was, his whole authority was based upon, look at this, is based upon who he was, his whole identity. And when you reject the identity of Christ, you're rejecting the authority of Christ, and then you're going to oppose Christ. And that's what we see. That's what we see from this man, and that's what we see from these leaders. 
They had already rejected Christ in their mind. Why? Because they would not accept His authority. They would not accept His authority because they refused to accept who He was. They refused to accept His identity. It's all wrapped up in His identity. And what did Christ say to the to even the disciples at one point? He says, who do people say that I am? Well, what difference does that make? And then He says, well, who do you say that I am? Well, what difference does that make? It makes a whole lot of difference. If you do not see Christ as the Son of God, you don't see Him in His true identity. And you are rejecting His authority. And you will find yourself in opposition to this Christ. It comes down to that very fact. Who do you say Christ is And that was the decision that the Pharisees, the the Jewish leaders, they had to make. Who do they say? Oh, it couldn't be Christ. It couldn't be the Messiah. It can't be God. And they were explaining all of these things away. They were overlooking the obvious. They were overlooking the obvious because of their unbelief. Because of the sin of unbelief. Sin is a powerful force. It's a powerful thing. It will cause us to just just be in uh, our weakness. It, it will cause us to just not do anything about our sinfulness and just, just to kind of be uh, apathetic, lethargic, just kind of lays around for 38 years. When we have the power of Christ and all we need to do is step out in obedience and do something and just obey That's what sin can do. That's what sin does. And next week we'll see how how this, this leadership, they identified Christ wrongly and they began to oppose Him. This really was the first opposition. This is the first external opposition, force, persecution that that came upon Jesus. And John's pointing this out. And it was a result of man's sinfulness. Now, we uh, hopefully, in the Dingus family, when the two came together, the the one Dingus boy and the one Reinhardt uh, girl, when we came together... We begin to work on our sinfulness. And, and we became uh, hopefully stronger as a result of being together. And we begin to put off sinfulness. In fact, you know what though? We still have our own weaknesses, don't we? And our family has our own just set of private sins or sins that just we want to hang on to. And, and, and we'll pass that on and it'll be a weakness for our children and they'll mesh with another and they'll have to deal with sin. It's just that cycle that just goes on and on and on. But listen, God gives us the power to deal with this. But it's a matter of just obedience. It's a matter of doing what we know. Is it God working in us? Absolutely. Is it 100% our effort? Absolutely. It's both. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for just just, this reminder of the power of Christ. The power of Christ's word. He just spoke a command. 
And the man's life was changed. Lord, I, I pray that we would see that same kind of change in our own heart as a result of salvation, as a result of the command of us to believe and have faith in You, and the command to, to repent and put sin aside. But Lord, help us to do what we are called to do, and that's just obey. Lord, sometimes that's the hardest. Sometimes we get so used to being in our sinful condition that we we just don't do anything about it. Lord, help us to be... Help us to be people that that want to get well. that, That want to fight against our sinfulness. May we never become complacent in our sinful state. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.